You're like, so they have 14 cofactors. Which one do I keep <laughs> them on? Exactly. <laughs> Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali, and you're listening to Feeds Admin. Alice, we are, we've come to the, the beginning of the end, really. <laughs> beginning of the end of the saga. Yeah. It is, uh, it's been a pleasure. I have to say, it's, it's been a journey. We well. became experts. Yeah, exactly. Somehow. <laughs> Turns out editing all of this content really do that. So today, this is part four of four uh, of our genetics and metabolism talk with Dr. Deborah Greer. I segue into uh, when we have dysfunction. Ooh, into organelle organ- dysfunction. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay. So, start off with some mitochondrial disorders. Powerhouse of the cell. We. Um, yes. We know, <laughs> we know, I guess, uh, the, the very little that we know I, I, is that they are at risk of epilepsy and metabolic strokes. And that is a good place to start. Okay. So, I always say think uh-huh. multiple organs, not organelles, multiple organs yes. involved. Uh-huh. And huge variety of presentation. So let's go back. Ready to go back in yes. time? Yeah. Sperm and egg. That's how far back we're going. Oh, whoa. <laughs> okay, ready? Egg has lots of mitochondria, uh-huh. all from mom, right? Uh-huh. Sperm brings in almost no mitochondria. When that egg splits and becomes two cells after it's fertilized, half the mitochondria go to one, half the mitochondria go to the other. And the mitochondria keep splitting. Usually there's more splits early and then they, the mitochondria start copying themselves. But there's a couple splits and then they copy. So when you look even at like the four and eight cell stage, one of those cells will have a different mitochondria cohort than another one. The reason that is, is polymerase gamma, which is the polymerase that copies the mitochondrial DNA. Because remember there's nuclear DNA, there's mitochondrial DNA. Makes a lot of mistakes. It's not very accurate. So if I look at the mitochondrial DNA in two different cells in that eight cell stage, they could have different sequences. Maybe not a lot different, but maybe just a few differences. But depending on where those differences are, the mitochondria in those two cells could eventually do very different things. So that's why you're going to have patients with mitochondrial diseases that might have liver problems or might have brain issues or might have kidney issues or might have muscle issues. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it depends on where was the problem and in which cell it was in early. Mm -hmm. The other evil thing about mitochondrial disorders is more common than being actually a problem in the mitochondrial DNA. Mm -hmm. It's a problem in how the mitochondrial DNA is copied or used. Mm -hmm. And it's from being an autosomal recessive disorder that comes from the nucleus. But if the nucleus doesn't send good information, the mitochondria get more damage and build up damage over time. Mm -hmm. That's why you'll hear that babies are born fine Mm -hmm. and then get worse. Or you'll hear, hey, this kid was doing fine, and then they had, like, some kind of infection, like they fell off a cliff and had started having strokes or had a seizure or had all of these things and suddenly got so much worse. Mm-hmm. It's because those cells were okay, okay, okay. I can barely do this much work. Give me any stressor, and the mitochondria is shot. Mm-hmm. They can't do anything, and they die, and those cells die. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's how mitochondria work. And that's why when you tell me, oh, seizures and strokes, yes, those are the number one and number two reason you're kind of probably seeing the emergency room. Mm -hmm. So if you have a mitochondrial seizure, they can be very hard to treat. Because remember, you don't have mitochondria making the energy so the cells are all stressed. Mm -hmm. So that's causing the seizure. So how are you going to treat that seizure? Mm -hmm. Right? Like 
you have to somehow figure out a way to give them energy without using a mitochondria. Right. Well, there's one way. You give them ketogenic diet. And the ketogenic diet takes those ketones. They go into the mitochondria. They don't have to do the TCA cycle and the electron transport chain and everything the way everything else is designed. Yeah. Instead, they kind of bypass things that are broken uh-huh. and can push energy. So that's why you'll Perfect. often see kids with ketogenic diet. Uh-huh. So if you have a kid on the ketogenic diet and you give them D10 normal saying at one and a half times maintenance, why will I come slap your hand? What have you done? Why are you trying you to use the mitochondria? Exactly. Right. Why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you try to use their pyruvate dehydrogenase? They don't have it. And you just totally stressed them out Uh and got rid of their ketones and the rest of their body. And now their entire brain has no ketones to use for energy because we got rid of them. Because we gave them sugar. So that's why if you see a kid with a sugar allergy, you should be like, ding, 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 no D10. Is that fair? Yeah, very fair. Now, if their glucose is 12, you should give them dextrose. Does that make, like, yeah, it's, it's, but there's no, it's a, perfect, like, there's yeah, no, sure. you know, please treat the child in front of you. Absolutely. But often kids with, like, pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency, which we have a lot of there, that's a mitochondrial disorder, because they can't convert pyruvate to citric acid, which is the first step in the TCA cycle. So if you can't do that conversion, they actually can do pretty well with the ketogenic diet. So that's one example. So if we think about these patients, mm-hmm. the ones who we often think about are the ones who are coming with metabolic strokes. Remember, in a metabolic stroke, it's the part of the brain doesn't have the food or resources it needs for whatever reason. In a normal stroke, it's because there's a blood clot, so the blood can't get there. Mm-hmm. In a metabolic stroke or mitochondrial stroke, it's because the blood can get there, oxygen can get there, but the cells can't use it because the mitochondria aren't working. Mm-hmm. So they might all be there, but they can't use it. So the ones that we think of most commonly are MELAS. So MELAS stands for mitochondrial encephalopathy with lactic acidosis stroke. Because mm-hmm. the neurologists are nice and spell things for <laughs> Fair? Yeah. So in MELAS, mm-hmm. it's kind of counterintuitive. What we do is we give them something called arginine. And we have to do it rapidly. At the onset of stroke, if we give you arginine, it increases blood supply to the brain. Why would it increase the blood supply? I'm kind of pushing as many nutrients into the brain as I can so that any mitochondria that's even there, maybe trying to work, is going to have so much sugar and so much nutrient that it can use whatever is there. Does that make sense? You're kind of pushing its supply. So that's what arginine does. The big side effect of arginine is low blood pressure, right? Because I've vasodilated, so I'm going to vasodilate everywhere. And if you put this through a peripheral line and you're causing a vasodilating agent going into a peripheral vein, Mm -hmm. it's really easy to blow a blood vessel and they get these horrible necrotic areas. So that's why we always start the arginine through a peripheral, Mm -hmm. but they have to go to the ICU if they're on a peripheral because they need to watch that IV every one to two hours. But would you wait for, you know, six hours to get a central line? Never. Mm -hmm. Because this person's stroking and the only treatment is arginine. Mm -hmm. So you're going to start it through a peripheral, but you're going to be aggressively watching that peripheral line. Fair? Yeah. So that's MELAS. Any other ones that are like, oh, this is my favorite mitochondrial disease? MRF. Yes. <laughs> it's purely just me. <laughs> and ERF stands for ragged red fibers. So it's from the olden days when we used to biopsy the yeah. muscles. Uh-huh. So MRF patients actually 
hopefully aren't coming to the ED too much. Okay. But most of the time we're able to manage them at home. They would be coming in, I know you're shocked for vomiting, <laughs> not able to tolerate feeds, not able to eat, with those issues. Yeah. And guess what we would do for them? Well, we might not do D10, uh-huh. but we might do like a D5 okay. or a D10 at one times maintenance. We'd watch yeah, their yeah. glucose levels, okay. right? So these are MRF patients and also MELAS patients. We watch mm-hmm. their glucose levels pretty well okay. to say, are you using the glucose we're giving you? Yeah. If I'm really worried about one of these patients that they're not acting like they're using glucose, I might give them a little insulin. So they force them to use the glucose. Mm-hmm. Let me help you use what I am giving you. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Person. So your, your question is, is the glucose going into the cells and are the mitochondria within the cells able to utilize the right. glucose? Right. So we're having all those conversations with me in the ICU throughout the course. Usually in the emergency room, I'm more like, hey, let's make sure they're hydrated. Because the number one thing I can do at the moment is make sure their blood volume is good enough that at least they're circulating well, right? So they might need a bolus, they might need D5 or D10, depending on their blood glucose levels. And again, these are people you want neuroprotection, so you're not going, you know, quarter normal saline. You're going normal saline as much as you can on these patients. Let's see, carnitine, the role of carnitine. Uh, oh, oh, that is, you like controversial questions. <laughs> wow. So here's why. There's this thing called a mitochondrial cocktail. And what people have done is they've said, well, there's lots of things in the mitochondria that need vitamin cofactors. Mm-hmm. So what if we give them the vitamin cofactors? Wouldn't that make them all feel better? Mm-hmm. Like, what if we gave carnitine in case some of those organic acids are building up and it would make it water soluble and then we wouldn't have damage? What if we gave some riboflavin? Because there's some riboflavin responsive enzymes. What if we gave them thiamine? There's thiamine response. So if you look back in the literature, people were coming up with these crazy compounds of like 12 and 14 vitamins and components, all of these gamish of things to see, kind of throwing at them to see if it would help. When they did this great literature review of all of these compounds, they kind of alphabetized like, what, what would be the grade for this? The highest grade was a C plus. And the highest grade was for something called ubiquinol. So ubiquinol is CoQ10. It's one of the steps in the electron transport chain. And what it does is if there are free radicals that are loose, it can hold on to the free radicals so that they don't damage the rest of the cell. Everything else was less than a C. Less for Ds, Es, and Fs. The only time I say a cocktail is meaningful is if you know genetically what the issue is. Mm -hmm. So if you know that you're missing an enzyme that's thymine responsive, please give thiamine, mm-hmm. right? Like try it. You, you try these things. Mm-hmm. But unless you have a good reason to start something, you should very cautiously start things. So I would never give carnitine unless I knew they had low carnitine levels. Okay. I, the first, only yeah. thing that I will give without knowing more mm-hmm. is ubiquinol mm-hmm. because it's the only thing that even got a C. Everything else, I want to at least have a hypothesis of what's wrong or missing in the patient before I'll start vitamin willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. That is controversial. Full disclosure. Yeah. Some families want to try. I'll let them try one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. But I don't like the 13 things compounded together. Yeah. Unless I know what they have. Um, just real quick, when they're NPO, what meds are you going to keep on? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, so they have 14 cofactors. Which one do I keep <laughs> them on? Exactly. So 
hopefully if you get one of my patients that has mitochondrial disease, they might have ubiquinol. And I'll be like, oh, please hold it. Okay. It's a C plus. Yeah, there you go. Right? Like, that's yeah. that, that do just something that's an A or a B, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, if they have thiamine responsive disorder, please give the thiamine. thiamine. Yeah. So that's why it's so important to have that conversation of, yeah. is this a cofactor because someone had a good idea and we're just trying it? Or is this a known response? Mm-hmm. You don't want to skip that known response, but I think it's really reasonable to skip the maybes. Yeah. So it's a good rule it's, a, it's a weird answer, yeah. but I think it's, but it's it a conversation. Kind of you're going to be contacting your you're going local geneticist. You're going to try to hopefully figure out who prescribed that thing yeah. and find out why. <laughs> exactly. If it was a we're putting the whole kitchen sink at them because the family wanted us to try everything, right. great. But you know what? You can hold that one for while they're in PO for a day. Start tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. So mitochondrial disorders have a variable presentation. They might be on a ketogenic diet. They might not. Call genetics before you do anything. In MALOS, you might end up treating an acute stroke with arginine to increase cerebral perfusion. Arginine can also cause significant necrotic infiltrates. And so if the arginine is going into a PIV, you're going to want to consider ICU admission just for monitoring of that peripheral IV. So paroxysmal yes. disorders. Yes. So let's talk about those for a yes. few minutes. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. So do you guys know what the paroxysmal is? Um, so you should come visit my office because I have a cell that I made cells out of glass and put them in my window. And the peroxisome's job is to make and recycle big fats, long chain fats. So the peroxisome is very good at recycling things and making long chain fats. Remember, the fats we use for energy are like up to 18 carbons long. The fats we use to build cellular structures and build molecules are longer than that. They're like 20s and 24s and 26s and 28s, so really long fats. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And they're that many carbon chains long, because organic chemistry with carbon chains, all that mm-hmm. good stuff. So in paroxysmal disorders, there is an issue with converting one fat to another fat and being able to recycle them all. So the paroxysmal disorder you probably know best is XALD. Ex-lingual dystrophy mm-hmm. should be the one you think of yes. probably most commonly. And the way you diagnose it is with very long chain fatty acid analysis. So I always laugh at very long chain fatty acids or 16 carbs long, but very <laughs> long chain fatty acid analysis is different than very long chain acyl dehydrogenase. So dehydrogenase means we're breaking it down for energy. Very long chain fatty Acid analysis means we're looking just to see what the growth is and making structures out of fats. It's so stupid how we name things in genetics and metabolism, I think. I hate that. So when we do a very long chain analysis, we're looking to see what are 26, 28 long, those really long fats. And in X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy, the adrenal leukodystrophy, so adrenal and leukodystrophy, we have both breakdown. So adrenal and brain are the two things. Mm -hmm. So anytime you see a child who has adrenal issues, you should think, could they have XLD? Anytime you have a child who has white matter disease, you should think, do they have XLD? And excitingly, if you happen to be in the District of Columbia, we're now doing newborn screening for XLD. So that's good to know. Is that fair? So why do we want to find this disorder early? Well, it's not curative. Early bone marrow transplant seems to help outcomes. So that's why it's on the newborn screen in D.C. Mm -hmm. That's very early 
transplant. So that's why we need newborn screen before they're symptomatic. The peroxisome uses hydrogen peroxide and plays a key role in lipid metabolism. In any patient with white matter disease, you should consider the peroxisomal disorder X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy. We now have X-linked ALD on the newborn screen in Washington, D.C., because there's evidence that early bone marrow transplant can improve outcomes. Let's move on to the lysosome. Oh, these are my favorite. Did you know I love lysosomes? They're my favorite. Well, they're not quite. They're almost my favorite. Well, <laughs> lipids are too. I think I have a lot of favorites. But that's okay. I know you love what you do. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you're a dork, Deb, but that's okay. <laughs> it's like the Nerd Podcast 101. Okay. So let's talk about lysosomes. Yes. So lysosomes uh-huh. are the recycling center of the cell. Mm-hmm. So remember how peroxisomes recycle long fats? Lysosomes convert sugar moieties. So remember when you make a protein, you have sugars that attach to them so that, that they can get to the right part of the cell. So the sugars direct where things are going within the cells. So in lysosomes, what happens is it's like a garbage disposal gets clogged up. So, I mean, you we've all done this, right? Let's just sure, sure. be honest. Maybe I did this last week when I put some spaghetti in my garbage disposal and I turned it on for not long enough. <laughs> and then... No, just, no one heard that from me from my apartment building, hopefully. <laughs> and then later that day, I realized my sink was stopped up. And I was like, what is wrong with my sink? And it was stopped up and it was starting to overflow because I'm a dork. And I'm like, oh, turn the garbage disposal back on because there was still spaghetti in the bottom of my garbage disposal. The idea in the lysosome is if you accumulate any one molecule, the problem isn't that one molecule. It's actually not toxic. It's that it's overflowing and filling up the entire lysosome. So it has no ability to function. It's like that one component just fills the entire lysosome and then fills the cell and then fills the area all around the cell. So it's kind of like a stopped up sink. The problem isn't the spaghetti. The problem is there is water now flowing out of my sink onto my floor. I don't really care about spaghetti. I care about the water on my floor. Same thing in the lysosome. It's overwhelming the lysosome. The spaghetti is not the problem. The lysosomal accumulation product is not the problem. So in these disorders, so some of these disorders are the mucopolysaccharidosis disorders. And you're like, that is a really long word. So MPS disorders. So muco, slimy, poly, mini, saccharide, sugar, dosis. So a whole bunch of slimy sugars on a protein disorders. So, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) slimy things on proteins. So in Fabry, Gachet, Crabbe, and we put Pompeii here because it's like those. But it's, it's put, not. But it's not because it's really a glycogen. Yeah. But but it's like yeah. them. And I'm actually going to move Tay-Sachs to a different group. But uh-huh. those MPS1, mucopolysaccharidosis disorders, specifically MPS1, 2, and 3. So Hunter and Hurler are your yeah. MPS disorders. Yeah. And then the others oh, yeah. are your sphingolipid disorders. Okay. So let's talk about Hunter and Hurler. Yes. So Hunter, Hurler, and San Felipe are, are MPS 1, 2, and 3. Mm-hmm. Those are the three most common lysosomal disorders we usually see here at Children's. Uh-huh. So Hunter is boys. Hurler is both. Hurler is on the newborn screen. It's MPS 1. It's on the newborn screen. It's a little bit controversial, though, because there is something called a pseudo-deficiency gene that is common in the African population. So what that means is that the kids scream that they have MPS1, but they don't really have it. 
So what do you guys think of that? It doesn't sound doesn't sound great as a parent, as a primary care pediatrician. So how do you feel that suddenly now, if you are of African descent or African American descent, your chance of having a false is, you know, a hundred times higher than the rest of the population? That feels really unfair, doesn't it? A false positive. Sorry, it's a false positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, it's a false positive. So you're you're being scared when you shouldn't be scared. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about what population is most worried about. Abuse of the healthcare system. It's not uncommon. Yeah, like a systemic, yeah, yeah, a lot of good reasons not right? to trust the healthcare system. Yeah. So now I'm going to yeah. say, oh, your baby might have this horrible disease. You need to come in. Right. Oh, no, they don't. It's because our system's not good enough yeah. for your child. You're right. Does that make sense? That's, that is a lot of controversy. Yeah. Yeah. So I love what DC does. Do you know what they do? So they take the sample, and before they report out MPS1, they actually do the genetic test and do genetic sequencing for the common variant. So they don't tell families this is abnormal. They say it's a normal screen because wow. we know why it's low. So go DC. Go DC. Yes. Yay, right? Yeah. Yay DC. Yeah. We don't always do everything right, but they did this one they right. They did this one like, really right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Took wow. about six months to figure it out. Oh, but cool. but let's, right. let's, full <laughs> disclosure, they're doing it right now. <laughs> let's be positive. <laughs> so that's MPS1. Okay. MPS2. So MPS1 is on the newborn screen mm-hmm. because we know if you get early... Um, transplant, you can actually have much better outcomes. So bone marrow transplant, when those bone marrow cells can still cross the blood brain barrier and prevent some of the brain damage. So if you look at kids post bone marrow transplant and post enzyme replacement therapy, Mm -hmm. they can start looking very coarse and they actually look less and less coarse as they age. So you can actually see the change from the outside. If we think about kids with Hunter syndrome, if we look at those kids, they don't do as well with bone marrow transplant. That is why it's not now on the newborn screen. They, um, there are some studies out there for gene therapy, but they aren't widely available yet. Um, and then MPS3 is San Filippo syndrome. Which we see, I don't know, I've encountered it at least like two times so far. Oh, wow. I don't know that much about it, but I've seen kids who yeah. have it. Yeah. So San Filippo is MPS type 3. Okay. They often present with behavioral issues, Mm -hmm. very poor sleep, very odd behaviors, very aggressive. Mm -hmm. And they're described as being coarse. Mm -hmm. What coarse means is like everything seems thick. Mm -hmm. Their nose is thick, their ears are thick, their lips are thick. So I always tell people, when we use the word coarse, we just mean everything looks thick. And then their hair is very thick. So that's what you're looking for in in San Filippo. There are good gene therapy trials going on with San Filippo. The results aren't out yet, but it's active. There's two different trials going on. Then there's the sphingolipidosis yeah. disorder. So sphingo is a type of lipid. So it's like they can't break down this certain type of lipids called sphingolipids. So that's where we're talking about GM1 and Tay-Sachs, as well as Crabbe. So those are your three sphingolipid disorders. These tend to be very severe patients. You've probably heard of Tay-Sachs. They can have contractures. They can have like severe life-threatening brain kind of degeneration. Mm -hmm. So often they don't live past 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. Currently, there's no treatment for Tay-Sachs and there's no gene therapy trials for Tay-Sachs right now. GM1 is the one step above Mm Tay-Sachs and there is a gene therapy trial at NIH for that. There are kids with both Tay-Sachs and GM1 where you can have presentation later in life. So you don't have to have the infantile presentation. You can have a later, milder presentation or even adult onset presentations of all of these. So all of these disorders that we're talking about, remember, it's all about accumulation in the lysosome of goo, right? So if you have a milder version, 
you accumulate the goo later, so you have presentation later. No matter when you present, we try to get rid of the goo. So in gene therapy, we're giving you the enzyme back. In enzyme replacement therapy, we're giving you the enzyme. It can't get into the cell, but it gets the goo from around the cell out at least. So those are the two forms of treatments. So CRAB-A is a very controversial one. There are a lot of family groups that want CRAB-A on newborn screens throughout the country. Um, it's controversial because most, um, or not most, many centers feel like doing enzyme, there's no enzyme replacement, there's no gene therapy for CRAB-A. And kids with CRAB-A um, often die pretty much an excruciating death. A lot of crying, a lot of pain, a lot of distress. They tend to cry constantly for the last one to two months of their life. When you look at kids who have treatment with bone marrow transplant, it doesn't change the death time. It only prolongs the death. So for most of us, if we still have the same death consequence that's so severe and so traumatic for the child and the family, it's a little hard for us to say we should newborn screen and treat that. But at the same time, families feel like, but we want to know. So there's controversy, right? Like, what do we do? So that's crab egg. And that's why there's a lot of controversy and a lot of debate about when it should go on newborn screens. There's a few states that are screening and other states have not yet decided. As with everything, our federal government, through the Secretary of Health, decides what's on something called the RUSP. So what they do is they say, these are things we think states should do newborn screen for. So, for example, PKU is on there. We all think they should. MSUD. Yes. Um, Fabre is not on there, but a few states screen for Fabre because there's an enzyme replacement therapy. MPS1 is on there, but Hunter is not because MPS1 has good response to transplant. So it depends on like they have like a group of professionals that all get together and say risk benefit. Is this worth screening for because there's a treatment? Crabbe is not currently on that list. It has been reviewed, but it's not on the list right now. So that's lysosomal storage diseases. So why would they come into the ED? Usually they're coming to the ED because they have a chronic progressive disease. They're not coming in in an acute metabolic crisis. If we think like paroxysomal disorders, like XALD, they could be coming in with acute adrenal issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. treat the adrenal issue. Yeah. And in lysosomal kids, it's usually something with the G-tube feeding, G-tube dislocation, new onset constipation, diarrhea, vomiting. Like there are chronic kids who have chronic kid issues. Mm-hmm. So that is more the presentation you see in the ED. The few times I've called a lysosomal kid is, it's, hey, we need to replace their G-tube or they're a little bit sick and mom just can't handle taking care of a child the size that's this sick. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not that acute metabolic management usually. Yeah. 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 And again, that's a case where it's important to figure out what are the goals of care. And I would say that many of our lysosomal families, extending life is very important to them. Mm-hmm. So having aggressive management is a priority. Most families that are not interested in in extending life are probably at home with hospice and not coming into the ED. So I think you could almost make the assumption if they're there, they likely are are, are ready for more intervention because they're not coming in for little things. If you have hospice, they can change the G tube for you, and they'll wait till tomorrow. It's okay. Is that fair? Yes. (laughs) So that's kind of my view of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's not yeah. really a metabolic emergency no. in my sensorial no. storage diseases. So it's a good way. To, it's a good way to stop. You're yeah. like, you know what? It's okay. Yeah. And I always laugh. One time they're like, "Well, what should we put in the tube?" I'm like, "Anything on the shelf? <laughs> just, I don't just care." They're like, "Your metabolism, you care." I'm like, Mm-mm, no, "Don't yeah. care." Does mom have something in her purse? <laughs> and they, they yeah. yeah, I'm like, give them some food. Yeah, yeah. They were like, they're crying, they're hungry. I'm like, then feed them. <laughs> I'm like, what do you have? I think that night we put a combination of whole milk and apple juice through there, too. Oh, something nice. crazy like that. I was like, that <laughs> works. Delicious. I'm like, you probably shouldn't mix those. I might clog the tube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as you don't clog the tube, I don't care what you put through there. True, true. I think it was whole milk that kid got that night. But the, the take-home message is there's not certain metabolic formulas that they're going to decompensate. All right. The lysosomal disorders include the mucopolysaccharidoses and the sphingolipidoses. Mucopolysaccharidoses include mucopolysaccharidosis 1, 2, and 3. And the sphingolipidoses include Tay-Sachs, GM1, Crabbe disease, Fabry disease, and Gachet disease. Pompe disease is also a lysosomal storage disorder. Mucopolysaccharidoses include MPS1, which is Hurler syndrome, MPS2, which is Hunter syndrome, and MPS3, which is Sanfilippo syndrome. MPS1, or Hurler syndrome, affects both boys and girls. It's on the newborn screen in many states because early bone marrow transplant can improve outcomes. MPS2, or Hunter syndrome, is X-linked, and so it affects mostly boys. You can remember this as, boys can't see the X when they're hunting. It is not on the newborn screen because these patients just don't do as well with early bone marrow transplant, and there may not be an early treatment to offer. We do, however, have some gene therapy studies going on now, and we're hopeful for a treatment in the future. MPS3 is Sanfilippo syndrome. In this disease, the kids have coarse facies and present with behavioral issues. We have some good gene therapy trials going on now. Because lysosomal disorders generally include mucopolysaccharidoses and sphingolipidoses, we could talk through the common sphingolipidoses now. Sphingolipidoses include Tay-Sachs disease, GM1, Crabbe disease, Fabry disease, and Gachet disease. In Tay-Sachs, this is unfortunately a life-threatening neurodegeneration. We wish there was some type of treatment or gene therapy, but there is not. The life expectancy for a patient with Tay-Sachs is 18 to 24 months. The second sphingolipidosis to know about is GM1. GM1 is one enzyme above Tay-Sachs in the pathway, and there is a gene therapy trial going on now. Besides Tay-Sachs and GM1, the next sphingolipidosis to know about is Crabbe disease. Many families would like it on the newborn screen, but unfortunately there is no early treatment to offer patients, and so right now it's not on the newborn screen. We wish that bone marrow transplant was helpful, but it does not delay death. The next sphingolipidosis to know about, besides Tay-Sachs, GM1, and Crabbe disease, is Fabry disease. In Fabry disease, this is an X-linked disorder, so you can expect mostly males to be affected. There is an enzyme replacement therapy, so a few states are starting to put it on their newborn screens because you can offer an early treatment that'll improve this child's life. Besides Tay-Sachs, GM1, Crabbe, and Fabry disease, the next sphingolipidosis to know about is Gachet disease. The next lysosomal disorder to know about is Pompe disease. Pompe disease presents like a lysosomal storage disease, but it's really a disorder of glycogen breakdown where the patients can't break down the glycogen inside the lysosome. Remember that Pompe affects the heart, Pompe and the pump, and Pompe does have an enzyme replacement therapy treatment available. 
For this reason, we hope to see it on all newborn screens soon. The final thing to remember about lysosomal storage diseases is that they don't typically present an acute metabolic crisis. They tend to present just due to complications of having a pretty significant chronic disease like G-tube dysfunction and things like that. It's important to get these families linked in with genetics early, and it's important to remember which diseases do have enzyme therapy. Closing question for you. Yeah. It's either one thing you learned recently that you can't get out of your head or your favorite oh. thing about being a pediatric geneticist. Well, my favorite thing about being a pediatric geneticist and metabolic doctor uh-huh. is this is going to sound, am I allowed to sound really cheesy? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is that okay? That's 100% okay. Like, I meet families and they're like, you saved my baby's life. No one else knew what to do. And I was like, you know what? That's kind of cool because yeah. I knew what to do. It's It's really incredibly rewarding Mm -hmm. to know, to get a call from an outside hospital or to even get a call from RED. And they're frustrated and scared. And I'd be like, no, do this first. It it might not work, but this is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly rewarding. And then, you know, walking into the ED and meeting a family and mom comes up and hugs me. She's like, I'm so glad you're here because you know my child. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's a really cool career if you think about it. I run the palliative care and genetics clinic and I had a mom and you know, anyone can stop by and look in my office and see all the pictures of, of kids that we've lost. But, uh-huh. And it can be really hard, right? Because yeah. we lose kids. And to have a mom say, you know, we can do anything, but I'm so glad you got to live life with us. And I thought, that's why we do this crazy job, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we want to live life with people. I can't fix everything. There's a lot of things we talked about. There's no cure. There's no treatment. Yeah. And I tell families often, your child will probably die of this disease, but we want their life to be as good as it can be until then. Yeah. But we want your whole family to have a life and have a family life. So that's why I love this job. It's what we do every day in this building all the time. Let's do a quick recap just because, you know, it's a lot of information. Mm -hmm. Good to regroup. So starting out with mitochondrial disorder. So mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, as we know them, these are unique. They have variable presentations and these patients may be on ketogenic diet. So it's important to call genetics before you really do anything in terms of managing these patients. Mm-hmm. Good old-fashioned chart biopsy for them. Mm-hmm. One specific mitochondrial disorder is MALOS, or mitochondrial encephalopathy of lactic acidosis and stroke. I think it's interesting that you can treat their strokes acutely with arginine in order to increase cerebral perfusion, but arginine can cause significant necrotic infiltrates if it's going in through a PIV. And so you'll need to consider anybody getting arginine through an IV for PICU admission to get them frequent line assessments. Perfect. And next, we're going to go to paroxysomal disorder. So X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy is the most common one. You diagnose it with a very long-chain fatty acid analysis, and an early bone marrow transplant can help outcomes. For this reason, it's on the newborn screen in Washington, D.C., which is the only place that we... The only place we care about the children. (laughs) Jokes, jokes, jokes. And next, we have lysosomal disorders. Yeah. In lysosomal disorders, you can't break down one compound, and this compound will fill up the lysosome and clog it. Just like a garbage disposal, it'll prevent it from breaking down anything else. Liposomal disorders are generally either mucopolysaccharidoses or sphingolipidoses, depending on what you can't break down. And in general, these patients will not tend to present acute metabolic crises. It'll typically be complications of chronic issues. 
These disorders in general have pretty poor prognoses. There are few to no treatment options available for them. For that reason, many of them are not included on newborn screens. Two exceptions to this would be Hurler syndrome, where early bone marrow transplant can help improve outcomes, and then Fabry's disease, which has an enzyme replacement therapy that can be helpful. Yeah. And then the one other lysosomal disorder that I think is neat is Pompe disease because it is a disorder of glycogen breakdown where you can't break down the glycogen in the lysosome. And so it counts as both. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.